I'm Gabriel Spitzer, and this is Transmission. Today's episode, Learning As We Go. The thing that makes COVID-19 so tricky is its newness. It's a disease that literally did not exist in humans until a few months ago. And that's meant that health workers at virtually every point on the spectrum, from paramedics to primary care doctors to ICU specialists, have had to learn on the fly. KNKX's Will James spoke to Washington doctors at the successive stages of care who have been having to muddle through life and death decisions with little information to go on. The story that emerged was of people fighting a new disease in real time, writing a kind of medical textbook as they went. Will picks it up from here. For years, UN Po2 watched the same pattern play out each winter. He's a doctor at the Everett Clinic. So I've monitored influenza for over 20 years because influenza really drives medical care. It is the largest driver of wintertime visits, and it's the largest driver of hospitalization and mortality during the winter season. Every winter, as more people catch the flu, doctor visits go up until this past winter. What we ended up seeing in February was a gradual decline in the number of influenza cases. And then over two weeks, the number of visits in urgent care was actually rising. This was a hint that something besides influenza was in the neighborhood, so to speak, causing this increase in number of visits. Dr. Tu had watched the novel coronavirus spread across China to the Middle East and Europe. The first case in the United States was diagnosed in January, right in the Everett area. But health officials thought it was an isolated case and under control. This bug Dr. Tu saw in the data was a sign it might not be. We didn't have any way to test for COVID at that time, but we were certainly aware that this could be a problem. Before long, a second case of the novel coronavirus was diagnosed nearby, confirming it had been spreading person to person. Nobody knew how widely it had spread. That moment scrambled everything for workers in our medical system, from intensive care units to emergency rooms. Places like the Everett Clinic found themselves on the front lines. These are doctor's offices, walk-in clinics, the places you go when you don't feel well, but you're not sure what's wrong. Suddenly, these places are the vanguard of a national emergency, with doctors and nurses trying to detect the coronavirus in the population. Test kits were in short supply. Health officials only wanted to use them on people with certain symptoms, cough, shortness of breath, and fever above 100.4 degrees. But soon, the coronavirus revealed how unpredictable it could be. Barry Brown's another doctor at the Everett Clinic. I was at a shift at one of the non-infectious sites and saw an older guy with abdominal pain and fatigue and um, went in without full protective gear, just a mask, you know, no gloves, nothing like that. Was, he had no cough and he had no complaint of fever. And um, I examined the guy and I thought, you feel warm. And I checked his temperature again and he did have a fever. It was probably rising even at the time. Sent him to the hospital and they did a, a swab and he was positive. Dr. Brown didn't get sick, but his job just got more complicated. At the beginning, signs of COVID-19 were clearly defined. Fever, cough, shortness of breath. But as Dr. Brown read accounts from doctors around the world, it grew clearer that looking for those classic symptoms wasn't enough. The outbreak got a whole lot scarier. 
it was almost like anyone walking into a hospital or doctor's office could have the virus. So I saw another kid, a 13-year-old, that had abdominal pain and vomiting. And I went to press on her belly and examine her. And I'm like, you're hot. And I checked. And her temp was like 102.4, which you just don't see with a stomach flu in general. And I think it's very likely that that young woman had coronavirus. Even if someone tested positive, it wasn't like there was a treatment. All Dr. Brown could do was send them away with some advice. Stay home. That's one piece of guidance that stayed constant this whole time. That is about the extent of what I felt like I was accomplishing. Is when I see those individuals, I can say to them, I think you have coronavirus. All of this social distancing is for the sake of people who have it, people like you. So you're the one more than anyone else who needs to stay out of society until you're better. The other piece of advice he left them with was that if they felt short of breath, they should go to the hospital. But even that proved tricky. Dr. Brown says usually if someone's lungs are damaged enough, they feel it. Breathing becomes more like heaving. They're using accessory muscles. You see them recruiting their chest muscles. But at least with some COVID-19 patients, that's not the case. Their oxygen levels drop dangerously low, but they don't feel that bad. Almost like they're suffocating without noticing it. One day, Dr. Brown had a patient like that. He had been sick for five days, and he came in because he was feeling short of breath. And he said, oh, I feel better otherwise. My fever and my aches are all gone. I just feel a little short of breath. And we put the pulse oximeter on. It was 85%, which is critically low. And here's this guy talking to me in normal sentences, which, again, usually when people are breathless, they're, they're speaking in shortened sentences. It's just, it's highly unusual. You just don't see this, and it's quite strange and disturbing. Dr. Brown and his colleagues were learning in real time how tricky and insidious COVID-19 could be. And it wasn't long before one of them learned firsthand. At any point, did you start worrying about catching the coronavirus at work? I was not worried about it. Jean Rupert is another doctor at the Everett Clinic. She volunteered to work with possible COVID-19 patients. I personally did not have any high risk factors and I was not afraid and wanted to serve in any capacity that I could. So, you know, I, it was important to me to be able to help the community make it through this. She's 57 and was confident she could weather the virus. I knew that I had a 96% chance of being okay if I catch it. So, of course, odds never tell you what's going to happen to you personally. I went to work on, I think it was the 28th of March, yes. And at my place of employment, they were doing twice daily temperature checks. That Saturday morning, it was 99.5. And I said to the RN, gosh, that's high for me. And she said, well, but it's still below the guideline of 100.4. So we think you can still work today. And I said, okay. As the day went on, um, I developed a really bad headache in the back of my head. It was, it was like you had just wrenched your neck kind of headache. So I took some Tylenol. Close to the end of my shift, I just felt weird. Anyway, I got my stuff together. I got into the car 
by the time I got home, I was having severe chills. And, and I walked to the door and said to my husband, I have it. Dr. Rupert went back to the clinic to get tested. Within a day, it confirmed what she suspected. She had COVID-19. The first few days, she says, it was just a fever and a cough. I felt like I had something, but it wasn't awful. Then she experienced what a lot of doctors and patients have described. Just when you think you might be getting better, you find out COVID-19 was just winding up. By the fifth day, I started feeling really sick. My, my fever went up. This horrible, horrible fatigue set in. I lost my appetite completely. I had already lost my sense of smell. Days 5 to 10, she says, were a blur. She slept through most of it, waking up to eat jello or watch TV, then falling asleep again. It was getting harder to breathe. I would get up, walk into the next room, and have to stop and catch my breath. On day 10, her sense of smell started coming back. She thought, am I getting better? And then that afternoon, I got sicker than I had been the whole time. My fever went up to 102.2. Like I was trying to take a nap and my feet were so cold and I couldn't get warm and I was shivering like, like teeth chattering, shivering. And I was having trouble breathing. Being a doctor, I was like, oh, I'm probably coming down with a secondary pneumonia. But like doctors around the country, she didn't have a roadmap telling her what to do. She had to improvise. I just thought about the fact that I had had a patient who got worse after 11 days. And I sent him to the hospital and they gave him two liters of fluid. And then he did a little bit better after that. So I, I literally just sort of modeled myself after what the ER had done for my patient. She drank two bottles of water and took some leave for her fever. She told her husband if she didn't feel better by morning, she'd go to the hospital. But I was better in the morning. And then that was it. So I never had a fever again after that. But it was it was rough is all I can say. People say to me, have you ever been sick this sick before? And they say, no, I have never been that sick before in my life. What we just heard is considered a mild case of COVID-19. When experts say 80% of infections are mild, that can still mean pneumonia and relentless fever. Dr. Rupert says she looks forward to getting back to work and being able to tell her patients they're going to be okay, because now she knows from experience. Dr. Rupert is on her way back to the front line, but there's more than one front line. If Dr. Rupert changed her mind that scary night and decided she needed medical care, she would have ended up on another front in the fight against COVID-19, the emergency room. Doctors there have, in some cases, completely reinvented how they do things in order to keep themselves and their patients from getting infected. If you go to an emergency room now, you might get tested for COVID-19 or even get a chest x-ray in an outdoor triage tent. Only the sickest patients are brought inside, and the sickest of those end up in a place called the intensive care unit, the ICU. The rooms themselves are very quiet, especially for you know patients who are on a ventilator and sedated and unable to speak. Bashak Chiru is a pulmonary critical care doctor at the University of Washington Medical Center. 
She spent about two weeks in March taking care of people in an ICU specifically for COVID-19 patients. I guess more than a sound, um, you can observe the machine uh, doing its job in that I can look at the ventilator and see the breath being given on the monitor. And then you can also see the breath being given as the patient's um, chest rises and falls. She says in normal times, the ICU has this buzz to it. Teams of doctors and nurses sweep into rooms and gather at a patient's bedside to talk through a plan, often with a patient's family right there. But in the COVID-19 ICU, each room is separated from the world by a negative pressure anteroom, and there are no visitors walking the halls. Patients are in beds with tubes down their windpipes and more tubes going through their noses into their stomachs. Some are up writing notes or doing crossword puzzles, but many find the experience so uncomfortable they have to be sedated. What did it feel like to suit up and, and go in there every day? Oh, um, lots of answers to that question. I think in one way, um, it was simpler and that often in the intensive care unit, you're taking care of patients with a number of different conditions. So you might have someone with um, kidney failure and a few other people with respiratory failure and someone with shock or bleeding. And in this case, we were taking care of patients that really all had the same condition. In some ways that did make it simpler. In the COVID-19 ICU, doctors basically have one job, helping people breathe. And that's meant learning yet more twists and turns of this new disease. There's something very frightening and insidious about COVID-19, which is just the way it gets worse and worse and worse despite everything you're doing. Dr. Nick Mark, another pulmonary critical care doctor, splits his time between a few Seattle hospitals. You know, I've seen basically two ways that people with COVID present to the hospital. One is they come in a little bit short of breath, they generally get admitted, they get put on a little bit of supplemental oxygen, and then over the next few days, they get worse and worse until eventually I have to put a breathing tube in and put them on a ventilator. The other presentation is much more frightening. This is where somebody comes in, what we would do describe as in extremis. They're in a very serious state. Their oxygen levels are extremely low. It's a very like dramatic and terrifying presentation. Um, and we've seen some of those too. Have you ever felt overwhelmed at work during this outbreak? Not yet. I definitely have had moments where I've sort of the reality of it has hit me. You know, generally when I'm getting ready to do like a high risk procedure, like putting a breathing tube in, assuming it's not a, a true emergency, I like to take, you know, 10, 15 seconds and just sort of do some breathing, get very calm and in the zone. And I was doing that the other, the other day before a procedure and, you know, the thought just hit me like, I could get this. This is a high-risk procedure. Like, I could die. Like, my kids could grow up not knowing who I am. So, in that instance, it maybe had the opposite effect of not being a super calming moment. Right, like you had time to think. Yeah, sometimes when you slow down, the reality of the situation hits you that this is the biggest public health crisis of our time. You know, this is, this is the worst pandemic in a century. 
it's easier to process when you're thinking about one patient, one person at a time or one day at a time. But I mean, you kind of zoom back and you, you think about it like, oh my God, this is a national crisis. This is going to affect you know, millions of people. That, that reality is, uh, is pretty overwhelming. For much of the outbreak, doctors and government officials worried about disasters in ICUs. Their fear was running out of ventilators and having to decide who gets a chance at life and who doesn't. But finally, the outbreak threw doctors a welcome twist. That overwhelming wave of patients never arrived in Washington hospitals. Here's Dr. Chiru. None of us are ready to fully exhale, but I think we're all starting to breathe just a little bit easier in the last few days um, in that it seems that our, our cases aren't increasing exponentially. But the ICU is still where many of the hardest decisions happen. One study in Washington found COVID-19 patients can be stuck on ventilators for weeks, and about half never make it off the machines. The calculation of when to end care is one more thing doctors are figuring out. I think sometimes one of the hardest parts of being an intensivist is that I often don't get to speak to my patients or get to know them. I take care of them at a time when you know, they might be unable to speak. And so we really look to families to help speak for them. She says those decisions aren't a precise science. They're a conversation. Doctors navigating this new illness with their patients and their families in real time. Doctors are also navigating this new disease with each other. Dr. Chiru is on a text thread with other Seattle doctors to keep up with what's going on in their ICUs. Some of these exchanges are even happening in public on Twitter. Early in the outbreak, Dr. Mark realized he was one of the first doctors in the country caring for critically ill COVID-19 patients. So as he figured things out, he compiled his notes on a one-page sheet and put it on Twitter. Doctors started circulating it in hospitals around the country. This is not how medicine advances in normal times, when each new practice is poured over and peer-reviewed. But in the time of COVID-19, with doctors racing against time, they say their best resource is often each other. We need to we need to move faster than those traditional timelines permit. So it's it's filled a void both of you know an information vacuum. It's also filling a void, which is that you know the traditional means of education have kind of failed during this crisis. We need to come up with new ones. We're talking about you know how online is is a forum for doctors talking to doctors. I think it's also a forum for doctors talking to policymakers or the public. Um, I think one of the most terrifying things about the response to COVID-19 has been the lack of a coherent federal strategy. And so hopefully some of that information is filtering back to the people who are making policy decisions. He says it's a little scary to think medical decisions and public policy might come down to posts on Twitter. But he also says, apparently, that's where we're at. Reporting from KNKX's Will James. Transmission is produced by the staff of KNKX, including Posey Gruner, Kevin Kniestead, and Jennifer Wing. Our executive producer is Florangela Davila. Please consider leaving us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts, and you can tweet feedback at Gabriel Spitzer or email it to outreach at knkx.org. And if you like what you hear, please consider making a donation to the station at knkx.org. I'm Gabriel Spitzer. Catch you next time on Transmission.